What an amazing God we serve. And uh, today as we celebrate communion and we, we uh, think back to what Christ has done for us, God has called us to freedom. He has called us to walk in victory. Uh, a way of life following Christ as he, follow, he helps us to follow him and he fills us with his uh, grace and his power. And that's something we're celebrating and that's something that we want to uh, just rejoice in this morning. We want to continue in our Ephesians series today. And uh, today marks kind of a turning point in the series. The first half of the book, Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3, is what we would maybe say it would be doctrine. This is, this is what we are to believe. This is the theology of what God is like, what he is calling us to believe about him and about ourselves. Today we want to start in chapter 4, and here Paul kind of makes a switch. He's taught us what we are to believe, and chapters 4 to 6 now teach us how we now to live, knowing what God calls us to believe. We want to look at today, the title for the sermon today is called Maturity in Christ. God has called the church to grow in maturity. And a healthy church is a church that grows in Christian maturity. So before we go further, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for our time together this morning already and the songs that we, are, we have sung. We have sung about finding our worth only in you, in Christ alone. And when we, we celebrated how through what you have done for us and your resurrection, we now live in newness of life as well. And God, I pray for, for us as a church, those of us that are here this morning, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to hear from you so that we can be encouraged to follow you with all of our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So our passage of scripture today is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. So if you have studied this passage of scripture in any length, you will know that this is a a passage of scripture that is full of a lot of teaching. And so I just said a little disclaimer, there's no way that in the time that I have today I'll be able to kind of do this passage of scripture uh, full justice. But I want to take out of this passage of scripture a few uh, points that will help us to understand what it looks like if a Christian is growing in maturity. What it looks like for a Christian to um, go from a young follower of Christ, as he grows in his walk with Christ, what does that look like? So the first thing that we see in this passage of scripture, and we'll be reading from verse, verses 1 to 3, is that maturity is living worthy of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of peace through the bond of peace. So what does this life worthy of a calling look like? In a sense, this verse kind of sets up the preceding three chapters of Ephesians. But in the context of these next couple of verses, there's five ways that we are to allow God to change who we are. 
And as you look at this list here, these five ways, you'll see that all of them are hair, their, their heart character traits. He starts off by saying, be humble. We are to be humble people as we walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We find our example in who Jesus was. Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 says this, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, or to death, even death on the cross. So here we have God who has lived for all of eternity in the glory and the splendor of heaven, humbling himself and living among us. Then he continues and he says, be gentle. Maybe this is one of the things that we maybe wrestle a little bit as Christians, like what do you mean to be gentle? Aren't we like supposed to be bold? We just had a sermon series on what it means to be bold. Basically, gentle is strength with a soft touch. You know who you are in Christ. You know what is right and you have a grasp on growing in Christ and what that looks like. But as you reach other to, out to others, as you walk with others, you have a soft touch. You're pointing people to Christ, but you're not pushing him, them there. Another character trait of a person that is walking worthy of the gospel is that they are patient. Um, some of you have children, and you know that having children tries your patience. And those of you that don't have children yet, one day you'll know what I mean if you, uh, God blesses you with children. Now I thought I was a pretty patient person and then I had one son, then I had two sons, and I have four and there are many times when it's not something that they do. God uses them to reveal my impatience. We want things now. We want God to work in people's lives now. We want people to change how they do things now. But we have our example in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we have our example in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he talks about being loving. He is bearing with each other in love. So this is more than just tolerating each other. Maybe um, you remember when you were a, a young person or a child, maybe you're a child right now, you know those times when you sat in a room with your sibling and you wanted nothing more to go punch him in the throat, but you decided not to? That's tolerating someone, right? He's calling us here to bear with each other in love. So it's more than just putting up with a person that you kind of have a hard time getting along with. It's bearing with them, walking with them in love, being, having love be the thing that draws people together. And then number five, mature believers keep the unity that is found in the spirit. So he calls us to make every effort See, the pursuit of peace is a choice. It's something that we pursue, making an effort. It's something that we choose to do. Maybe we are often people that run from conflict. We don't pursue truth. We run from conflict hoping that peace will happen once we're gone, right? 
God calls us here to be, be peacemakers. We make every effort. Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verses 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This does not mean that we go around and um, overpower people, making them you know, conform to what we think should happen. That's the world's way of making peace. Making peace means that we go and seek out reconciliation with people. Seeking to be made right in relationship with them. And what is this unity of peace based on? It's based on the unity found in the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever, you know, been part of running an event or maybe part of an organization where there's more than one boss? Has anyone ever done that? Maybe it's like you're, you're putting on this event and there's like two or three people that are kind of telling people what to do. And it's really frustrating. You know, you're, you're told, you know, go do this, you know, go take care of this. And then while you're on your way, you get instruction from someone else. You're like, no, 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 don't do that, do this. And after doing, trying to do that all day, it can be very exhausting. It just doesn't work. I think the church needs to recognize that we need to follow the direction and we find peace and we find unity by finding or following the direction of one person. And that unifying presence of peace is the Holy Spirit. Next, Paul moves on in cha uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. He talks about how unity or maturity is being unified around the exclusive gospel. He says this in verses 4 to 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he gives us seven ways, uh, and he uses this word one seven times. First he says there is one body. So here he's referring to the one church. So he's not teaching here that a particular local church is the one true church. He's talking about uh, what we call in theology the universal church. So we have the universal church, which is all believers in all places and in all times. They are the people that have been saved by Christ. And only those that have been saved by Christ belong to this one church. So there is only one people of God. Only those that have been saved by Christ are part of this one body. Paul also teaches this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. He says, just as a body... Though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We have, for we were all baptized by one spirit, as so to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were given, all given the same, the one spirit to drink. So regardless of where we come from, regardless of what our background is, regardless of if we are male or female, or whether what, what kind of employment status we have. When we gather together as Christ's people, we are one. There is no distinction. There is not someone that says, well, I'm from a particular background, therefore I'm you know, a, a more um, worthy part of this one body. No, we are all one in Christ. Next he calls, there is one spirit. There is only one spirit from God, and he is God. 
The Holy Spirit is the only one that has spoken through the scriptures. He is the only one that is to lead the church. It is not God's plan to use other angels, other fallen spirits to speak to the church, to lead the church. There is one spirit, and he is the Holy Spirit. We are also called to one hope. What is this one hope? The biblical definition of hope is this. We see what we have, and we see what we have been promised, and we look forward to that which we have promised. That is our hope. And as Christians, we are all looking towards the one promise, that we have eternal life, eternal relationship with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And we look forward to that as part of one hope. He also continues, says, there is one Lord. There is only one Lord. Lord is a term that means master or overseer or leader. We only have one Lord, one master of our faith. His name is Jesus Christ. There is not one master and then there's others that are equal. We don't answer to anyone other than Jesus Christ. There is one Lord. Romans 10 verses 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is the Lord. There is only one Lord. And then he continues and he says there's one faith. And I think this statement was as scandalous when it was written as it is today. We live in a society that is pluralistic. And a society we are wrestling with the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. We were asked, what do you mean there's only one way to God? Don't, don't always kind of point to heaven. Paul teaches us very clearly there is only one faith. Namely, there is one way in which we can approach God. John chapter 14 verse 6 teaches us very clearly. Jesus answers, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one in whom we can believe to receive salvation. One faith. There is also one baptism. So there's much debate around what is meant with one baptism here. Um, there's um, some that teach that it's referring to the one baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I believe it talks about the one water baptism. And here Paul is not trying to say how many times uh, a person is supposed to get baptized. He's referring to the right kind of baptism. There is only one right kind of baptism, if you would put it that way, and that is the baptism that symbolizes, it is our testimony before God and man that we have accepted the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the one baptism. And then he, he, he wraps it all together and he says, there is one God and one Father. Notice as you look at this list, there is one, there's one body, one spirit, and so on. And he emphasizes this word one. I don't know about you, but I've wrestled with this. And I think all of us, as we grow in our faith, we will wrestle with the oneness of the gospel. We wrestle with this. And we have friends that wrestle with this. Like, what do you mean there's only one way to God. 
Isn't God being a little narrow-minded? Isn't God being a little jealous? One of the ways that I have wrestled with this and kind of how I've come to peace with this is this. I think we need to reframe, uh, reframe this question with a question, and, and it is this. Isn't it amazing how uncomplicated God has made the gospel? We don't need to wonder, is the way that I'm on, is this going to be good enough? Or my friends, they're on a different way, is that going to be good enough? We're always kind of wondering and we're, we're searching. God has made it very clear and he's made it very simple. He says the salvation is found in no other name than in Jesus Christ. One way, one hope, and one faith. And if we put our faith in the one Lord, we can know we have the one hope. That is as simple, as uncomplicated as it gets. And we sometimes assume that as we grow in maturity, that we move past the oneness of the gospel. Maturity in walking in Christ never graduates from the gospel. It never graduates from the exclusive exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, it only builds on it. You cannot have maturity in Christ without anchoring it in the one Lord, one hope, and one God. Paul continues in verses 7 to 13, and he teaches us that maturity, Christian maturity, is built up through service in the church. He says, but each one of you, of each one of us, grace has been given by Christ, as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets and evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. So Paul teaches us that each one of us has been given grace to serve in the church. This grace has been given to us so that the church is built up. And we are also told how we are to serve in the church. We are to serve as Jesus served. It teaches us that Jesus descended to the lower earthly regions. And this is a reference to what the Bible teaches in John chapter 1 verses 14. Where it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he came down to us through the lower earthly regions and after his death, resurrection, and ascension, his name is above every other name. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. His name is above every name. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Another way that God builds up the church is by giving leaders to the church. And so in our context, most of us think of the pastors or the elders of the church. 
And they are a very important part. But we have five um, positions or offices, so to speak, gifts that God gives to the church. He talks about apostles. He talks about prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are people that are gifted in different ways so that the church can be built up. Now, I think we sometimes see our pastors, and I think uh, if we as pastors are honest, we wish and we sometimes see ourselves as people that should be gifted in all five ways. But I have never met a pastor that is gifted in all five ways. God has given different leaders with different gifts to the church. And what is the reason God has given these pastors and these leaders to the church? Is it so that the leaders can do the work and that the church will grow? Very interesting thought. What does Paul teach? He says they have been given to the church so that the church can be built up and equipped for service. The reason why God has given leaders to the church is that we, as a collective body, can be built up and equipped to do the service. Not just one or two people, not just the leaders, but the whole church. And that is one of the biggest indications that a church is moving towards maturity. So as you come to church here, I would love for you to consider, as you grow in your faith, ask the question, what am I being equipped to do? How can I serve in the community? How can I serve in the church? How can I grow in maturity as I step out and try things that I maybe have not tried before? He talks about being built up. This means that as a church, I think we should grow in numbers as we reach out into the community. So apostles give vision, they empower new churches to start. Evangelists reach into the community and introduce people to Christ. So we see that. But a church is also built up in spiritual depth. So as a child grows taller, they should also be growing in weight as well. Imagine you have about a six-year-old and he's, he's weighing or she's weighing about 50 pounds. And, you know, the healthy child, five years later, there's 10 years old, they've grown a foot, and yet they're still only 50 pounds. Would that be a healthy child? They would not be a healthy child because they haven't grown in maturity. I think as, a, as Christians, as a church, we sometimes assume that as long as we grow in height or in numbers, that we are healthy. But a church needs to continue to grow in its maturity, in its understanding, in its, under, in its service to the community and to itself. We should not only be a church that grows in quantity, but also in quality of faith. And then Paul moves on and he explains to us what maturity looks like. And you find this in verses 14 to 16. He says this. When, then we will no longer be infants. So he's talking about being built up, reaching maturity. 
tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So he gives us five or six indications that maturing, the maturing process is happening. And this does not mean that as we mature, we will reach perfection. It's a maturing process. And we become more mature. We don't become fully mature. We become more mature. So people that are maturing, maturing Christians grow up in their faith. It says that we will no longer be infants. So if you look at some of the children in your life, children are easy to complain they're fickle, they're gullible, and they give up really easily. We are no longer to be infants, but we are to grow up in our faith. It says, also continuing, he says mature Christians are stable in their faith. They're not tossed back and forth by the waves. So when they experience trials, they're not, you know, thrown way off, and they're, they're you know, they're not questioning God's existence and their, his love and grace every time they go through a hard time. They're not tossed back and forth by the ways of life. Number three, mature Christians do not jump from one teaching to another. They're not blown here and there by every wind of teaching. So if, if we are a people that are constantly like jumping from one speaker to another, people that we find online, people that we hear on radio or TV, and we say this is the most important teaching in the world. And then maybe even a few months later, we jump over to another one and says, this changed my life. And we're constantly seeking the, the nourishment from these, quote, life-changing teachers. It's an indication that we haven't grown in maturity yet. We need to be people that are stable and growing in our understanding. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a straight path, but we can't be people that are tossed to and fro. Number four, mature Christians are not deceived by cunning doctrine. As we grow in our faith, as we grow in our maturity, one of the things that we we come to understand that there are many different perspectives. There are many different ways of seeing things. But in growing in that maturity, we should never err from that foundation. Our foundation of being one in Christ, only one gospel, only one hope. A pursuit of maturity is also rooted in love. Simply put, if you are not a loving person, you are an immature person. If you do not demonstrate love to others, you are not growing in maturity. And then Paul ties it all together again, and he draws us back to the one Lord. And that is the pursuit of maturity is rooted in Christ, verses 15 to 16. So as we conclude today, I want to draw our eyes back to the cross. I want to draw our eyes back to the resurrection. 
our pursuit of Christian unity never moves on from Christ. The roots only grow deeper in our understanding and relationship with Christ. We don't move on from Christ. We only come to understand him better.